love. Some would say it took a backseat when the pandemic forced us apart. As a family-run and proudly Canadian-owned company, Charm Diamond Centres saw the need to bring us together with tales of love and created the Canadian Love Map podcast. Since then, we've shared hundreds of real, uplifting stories that prove love conquers all. So thank you for listening. We couldn't do it without you. And remember, love starts here. This is a true Canadian love story. We were meant to be together. I can't imagine my life without you. Honestly, he's a light of my life. It's nice to be in that tractor beam of love. I'm her biggest fan. I think I knew I'd lost my heart again. I knew I wanted a marriage like that. Difficult roads can lead to very beautiful destinations. Well, love is the most important thing. We are all very powerful. We, we all have the ability to make a tremendous difference in the world by doing something really quite small. You give a seven-year-old child a teddy bear who's coming out of a war zone, that teddy bear probably costs two bucks. But that person will carry with them the fact that a foreigner gave them a teddy bear for the rest of their lives. Hi, I'm Nancy Regan. Today's love story belongs to Forbes March, a British-born boy turned Canadian, turned model, turned soap opera star, turned husband, father, and businessman, turned humanitarian worker at the Ukrainian-Polish border. This is the Canadian Love Map. It's been so long since I've seen your face live. Um, we go way back, but I've only seen you recently on Facebook and I've been riveted by your posts. So Forbes, welcome to the Canadian Love Map, first off. Thank you. I have this belief that every idea is conceived in an instant, some moment, and some have longer gestation than others, but I'm really curious to know when your idea to go to the border of Poland and the Ukraine was born. I, I, I think you're 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 right in that there are often like these these kind of light bulb moments. And for me, it was an image of a child um, on the news, uh, and there were uh, streams of refugees traveling in both directions and either side. And there was that that classic image of a lost child in the middle, and I just couldn't have that. The greater idea started back at uh, back during Katrina. I tried very hard to to get to Katrina. It was a similar image, uh, very now a very famous image. I saw the image of uh, a very distraught father holding up a newborn baby to the camera, uh, uh, crying for help that uh, he'd lost the mother and didn't have any baby formula. That that really stuck with me. I tried very hard back then to get there to to bring aid. I didn't have the resources or, or the experience to know how to do that. But uh, I realized back then that, that this was something important to me that I'd want to do in the future. When I saw that image of the child uh, in, in, uh, in Ukraine, I, I just couldn't have it. Uh, I kind of stopped sleeping. I stopped working. I just, you know, went at it. How am I going to get over there and, and do my part? Um and it grew. I became more and more convinced with it. I saw how uh, uh, Putin, he has lots of fun nicknames over there, how Putin was being defeated. 
that he wasn't being defeated. It was really, really uh, captivating to me that he wasn't being beaten by an army. He was being beaten by these, these, these really kind of incredible individual efforts around the world. Yes. Uh, that we might be able to win this without the usage of a big army. Uh, that if everybody just did their part, it's that cliche, if we all did what we could do in our own ways, that we could stop this. And that might make a really big difference in, in the future. I had just sold off most of my business. I had some time. Uh, my community immediately offered resources. And I realized I, I've, I've got no excuse. So I, I went over. So what I'm hearing from you is, in a way, it was the tragedy paired with the resilience that propelled you over there. Oh, they are, they are, they are, I, you, I really struggle with words to, to, to describe the experience. I mean, how, how do you describe a, a four-dimensional, you know, experience in, in, in two-dimensional images or words? It's very hard. Mm -hmm. You can do it through little anecdotes, but it, it was completely life-changing. From uh, from the degree of 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 concern and strength of who is now one of one of my very dear friends for life who who was standing at the border they they literally have this old wooden you know red and white stake that goes up and down on the border Just, I mean right out of a Le Carre novel right I mean you, when you're on the border it really feels like a Le Carre novel except again four-dimensional. You, you got the three dimensions of time. It's moving. Stuff is happening in front of you. Really, <laughs> look at Ray stuff is happening right in front of you. Hmm. People are smuggling stuff back and forth openly. Soldiers of various, you know, under a flag, not under a flag. I had a friend who was standing right at that, at that wooden barrier. Uh, a Polish man who had children, a family just a few miles over the border, and he was literally standing there waiting for Russia. That, that, that doesn't have the same impact in words or in a photograph as it does when you meet that man and you stand next to him for six hours while he stands there. And this isn't a nut job. This yeah. guy's got multiple degrees. He manages 10,000 people in a, in a hospital. Uh, he's a radiologist, and his concern is not false. Mm -hmm. there, there is a real, legitimate, rational concern that at any moment, the Russians might come down that road. Wow. And he can't have that. And then they had, there's a woman, a young woman came through with a, with a, with a baby child in her arms. <laughs> it's, just, it's crazy, right? You know, it's cliche. She came across the border, and it's, it takes her five days to get here. Right? She hasn't eaten. It's it's sub-zero temperatures. She's literally walking through forests and muddy fields. I mean, it's 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 that. She's got this little baby in her arms. She finally gets through the border. She grabbed a cup of tea and a cup of soup. Uh, and it was notable because she was by herself. Usually, they're they're in groups. Naturally, you know, if you're if you're a refugee, mm -hmm. you you form clusters, right? You you form herds. You you and your friends will go at it together. She's alone. And she, she disappeared on foot, uh, you know, into the back area. 15 minutes later, she turns back up and asks, how did she get back through? 
because like any border, it's confusing. At the airport, you know, you get gates five through seven, buses here, cars there, people coming in from Ukraine or over there and going over, whatever. It's just like every border, it's a mess. Sure. And she's asking, how do I get back across? <laughs> Where are you going? You, you just you were just here 15 minutes ago. And she replied in, in really broken English, baby is okay, I go back to fight now. Oh, wow. You're not going to beat these people. You're just not going to beat these people. Um, That's an extraordinary image. Which pales, which totally pales in, in, in comparison to the experience of the eye contact. When you when you make eye contact with this person, they're trying to convey to you uh, what's going on inside. Uh, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was extraordinary. Because in that in that interaction, you have emotion and energy uh, moving back and forth between you and swirling around you. And I can only imagine the energy that you were surrounded by. I, I want to strangely take you out of that for a moment, just to give people context about who you are. And uh, don't get me wrong, I do not believe that your story is who you are, but I would like you to just tell your story before we talk about how and you know, why you got over there. So go back and tell me the uh, Reader's Digest version of Forbes March's life story, please. Uh, Forbes March's life story. I'm, uh, I'm born in Britain. Uh, I was raised in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Uh, my, my, my parents are, are academics. My dad's a professor. My mom is a school teacher. Your dad's a professor of philosophy, right? Professor of, of philosophy. That is yeah. material uh -oh. here. We're going to tie that in somehow. I think so. Uh, I, I did have, now nah, this is, this is a little anecdote there. Um, when I was, uh, 19, 18, 19, um, I was, I was caught up in that, that big recession that hit. Nova Scotia and the Eastern Seaboard when the cod fishing ban occurred. Mm -hmm. And along with about 60 or 70% of my graduating class, I migrated out to Vancouver. Uh, from there, I discovered acting while selling watches door to door, walked into an acting agency to sell a watch. Uh, I traveled through Europe as a fashion model connected to the acting before settling back in New York, uh, re, uh, reinvigorating the acting career. Uh, ten years later, I decided to take a break from acting, uh, made my my country home my permanent home, and started a, a weird business up here, which I ran for uh, 10, 12 years. Where is up here? The Catskills. Uh, we're we're literally about five miles from the original Woodstock site, which is western New York. It's uh, hilly hilly farm country. Yeah, that's great. And are you farming? <laughs> I, I, I tried it. It turns out farming is hard uh, and not very profitable. It's a lot of work for not very much work, money. And if it's uh, not in your blood, then it's uh, a really awesome experience to do for a year. But no, uh, I have a firewood business. We, uh, we, we buy logs, we process them and dry them in huge ovens and sell them to uh, uh, mostly restaurants in and around Manhattan. I'm about a uh, two hour drive from Manhattan. Oh, that's interesting. So lighting up the world is something you're used to doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lighting the fires. Yeah, yeah. lighting the fires. Oh, that's great. Well, you're a spark plug, that's for sure. 
So am I right that the information you were getting was that they had enough food and supplies, but they didn't have the the manpower, the person power to distribute it? They have mountains of stuff, literally impressive, just heartwarming mountains of stuff. They have huge warehouses full of materials and goods. What they what they originally lacked was uh, was 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 people manpower person power. I don't, I don't know what the term is now. Can we still call it manpower? Yeah, I know. That's people, why I corrected people. myself. Yeah. <laughs> people to turn up and 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 help. And yeah. I think they still do have have a real shortage of, of people uh, because you need a lot of people to deal with something like this. And what was it like to arrive there, Forbes? When you get to the actual airport, you're filled with a sea of people. Uh, and pretty much the entire airport is related to to the issue, even though you're still three, four hours from from the border. So as as you get closer, you get this kind of buildup. But then it was it was very eerie in that the drive from Krakow to the border is a three or four hour drive, and there were long stretches where you would see absolutely no evidence of of a real war happening close to you at all. Life was completely normal. If you if you fell asleep and woke up, you'd be like, well, you know, hey, I'm in Milan or Venice or, or France. I'm somewhere in Europe, but, you know, awesome, let's go get a coffee. And then all of a sudden, you would pass a convoy of 20 or 30 U.S. tractor trailers, U.S. Army tractor trailers sending weaponry. You, you'd see, you know, a large number of, of modern tanks idling on the side of the highway. Uh, jets would fly overhead. You you would you would get these these again these kind of your and then your heart races and you get a little little build up, and then when you finally get to the town, it was a similar experience. We pulled into the town thinking like we're going into a war zone and nothing. People are going to work. They're smiling. They're talking. They're chatting. They're they're sitting outside cafes having a cup of coffee. You're kidding. Meanwhile, ten miles away. Bombs are being dropped out of the sky to destroy military installations and civilians are being machine gunned in the street. Then you go to the, you walk a mile, half a mile to the train station and it's complete madness, complete madness. There are uh, ad hoc military groups forming right in front of you. Uh, There are... Uh, a sea of yellow yellow vests mean mean NGO volunteers. Blue vests are, are UN. Orange vests were were I think were Red Cross, another group. Uh, and then the refugees. Um, so you got you know military going in, you've got refugees coming out, and you've got a swirling in the middle. Uh, and that's one of my first sights was two men, and these these are these aren't you know. Canadians are, are a little sentimental. Americans are very sentimental. They're, you know, they're, they, they cry openly. You know, Will Smith kind of, you know, <laughs> that whole Oscars madness. That's, that's American culture. We kind of wear our hearts on our sleeves. The, the Slavs don't. They're, they're much more reserved. They're, they speak with their eyes. They're, they're just a very reserved, emotionally, you know, tight bunch. And these two men were, were embraced, but it was a distance embrace. They, they, their arms were locked, but they're two feet apart, and they're looking straight into their eyes. And there's just such a, a depth there that I, I stopped. It, it kind of stopped me in my tracks because I realized that they were complete strangers. It was a young man and, old, and an old man. Young man was in a yellow vest. 
And I, I went, went about my business. I came back a half hour later and they were still standing in the middle of the foyer in that, in that same lock talking. Uh, and that kind of alerted me to the, to the, 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 the profoundness, the, the reality of, of, of the situation of what I was in for. It was these, these little vignettes of images and teeny little experiences that, that, that kind of get seared uh, into, into one's, one's mind. I have no idea what it must be like to 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 experience actual combat because I did not. Uh, I saw the safe side of, of the line. Mm-hmm. I sure have a new respect for 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 veterans. No matter what I think of any war that a veteran serves in politically, uh, the fact that that they went and came back, I don't think they can ever come back. I, I'll never come back from there. <laughs> my my ass is in this chair, but my my heart and my mind are 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 not here. I'll never be the same. And I didn't see any of the damage. I just saw the eyes of the people who had seen that damage that day, and that was enough, <laughs> you know. This podcast is brought to you by Charm Diamond Centers, Canada's largest family-owned jewelry store. They are proud to be putting love on the map. And the staff at Charm Diamond Centers are thrilled to be a part of your love story too. So visit CharmDiamondCenters.com or one of your local stores. Love starts here. I know that you posted about the need for therapists. And that really hit home for me. Because you think about what, you know, you're looking in those people's eyes, those women's and children's eyes, you think about the trauma that they are going through. So tell me about that, about the need for therapists and and if you got response to that. Sure. Uh, and I, I did. Um, there was uh, I, I, I made friends with, uh, with with some of the, the, the Red Cross guys, the uh, the responders, the medical responders at the, at the train station. And, uh, this is a big burly guy looked like a Viking dude. Uh, and we kept, we kept following each other back and forth. I, I went back and forth between the train station in town and the actual border crossing of Medica right, right on the, on the border. And I kept seeing him. We were almost following each other. So we, we became friendly. And I, at one point I asked him, Hey, you know, uh, uh, I'm a volunteer fireman back home and just, just, just learning experience. What is the, the, the uh, uh, the most common injury you're seeing here, you know, learning learning moment, and he said honestly it's not medical. He said it's uh, it's, it's it's psychological. He said these these people have seen stuff and they're in shock, and some of them are losing it. And when they lose it, they they come to us, and we're here with bandages. We 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 don't know what to say to them. So what we really need here are are, are crisis therapists. Uh, I said, you know, he said, we have none. He said, we've got a couple, but there's, there's not nearly enough. You know, there's so many points where they need them, and there's only a couple of them. Uh, so he, you know, he mentioned that. I put something on, on Facebook and got quite a few responses, and uh, hopefully some of them turned up. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's um, that, that was really the, the job. I mean, I, I, I kind of attached myself to the World Central Kitchen, who, those guys who provide soup to people anywhere in the world. Anywhere there's trouble, there's world central kitchen with a big soup pot. Uh, and that was awesome. But I, I quickly realized that the soup was, was, was really kind of more of a, uh, uh, it, it created the moment, you know, they, they, the, the refugees, the women would, would come through that door, would take them, you know, three, four days to get to the border. Yeah. They haven't eaten in those three, four days. Some of them hadn't eaten in even longer. 
uh, and they needed nourishment. Yes. But the nourishment wasn't what they really needed. What they really needed was the, the analogy of a warm cup of soup, mm-hmm. a warm cup of tea. The feeling of being nurtured. Well, a lot of them wanted to be seen. It's so dehumanizing. And what the experience they had gone through was so dehumanizing. You know, the bombing of civilians, the machine gunning of cars full of, of, of people, the, the indiscriminate bombing of cities, uh, the complete destruction of cities that were still occupied by civilians. Uh, these are dehumanizing experiences. You, you look at a sea of, of, of migrants, we don't see the individuals in the crowd. And I think what I discovered was that the people in the crowd realize that they lose sight of their own individuality. They, 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 to become a refugee is inherently dehumanizing. Right. And this weird thing happened and it happened. The first time it happened, it just like knocked me on my ass. I mean, I, I'm out. I had to, <laughs> to get out of there quick, but it was the, the cup of coffee, the cup or, or tea. They women everywhere in the world, like a cup of tea. I don't know what it is. You guys and your tea and lemon, <laughs> hand them a cup of tea, and they would do this weird thing where they would deliberately, their finger would touch my finger. That's a choice. You don't need to touch my finger. Well, it touches my finger. They touch your finger, I look up, and you you, you connect eyes, and they'd lock. <laughs> ah, they gotcha. And they would somehow convey what they had experienced leading up to this moment. Because uh, they literally, they were in, in the war zone until they opened that door that's 20 feet in front of me. They open that door and they, they come out and they're now on the side of freedom and, and goodness and safety. And, you know, but that just happened. It's literally a doorway to freedom. Yeah, literally. And, and I'm Forbes, the, you know, the goofball uh, hands him a cup of hot tea and uh, we, we connect and you do that connecting thing uh, about a thousand times per day. And sometimes it was easy. Sometimes it was just an acknowledgement. They just wanted, they would connect and you would hold it. And then at the end of, you know, five, 10 seconds, they'd kind of give a nod and walk away. They just needed to connect. And sometimes it, it was much more. Uh, uh, sometimes these people had seen, I think it would, a lot of it would also depend on what they saw. Some of these bus loads of women and children were coming from places that hadn't, hadn't been really affected. We, on the other hand, other busloads were coming from places that had been very affected. We had a busload of women come in from, uh, I think they were coming in from Kiev, uh, but the bus driver told us that his story was that the women had gone into the basement with the children when the bombing started with a week's worth of food. Two weeks later, they realized they were in trouble. They now had run out of food a week ago. So they decided to come out now they come out and they're in the middle of a war zone. I mean, they, they went down in a city like beautiful downtown Toronto. They come up and they're in Warsaw 1938, where, you know, a third of the city is destroyed. There's bodies all over the place. There's tanks firing at each other, rockets firing through the air. It's a real war zone. It's, you know, it's it's a video game that they're inside of with their children wearing their Patagonia jackets and their high heels. They came out and then now they haven't eaten in a week. They needed to find a way out of the city. They found a bus because there's all these, these are the unsung heroes, these bus drivers. Mm-hmm. And they look just like, you know, Halifax bus drivers, you know, they're kind of 
kind of goofy. They got kind of a soft belly because they spend all day sitting. They all chain smoke too much. They're all kind of grumpy. Uh, and these guys are going back and forth with buses. They, they pick up a load of women and children in Kiev, drive out, drop them off, turn around, go back in, pick up another load. I mean, they're the unsung heroes that, that no one's mentioning. Anyway, they find a bus that's coming to, to, uh, to, to Medica, to the border at, uh, at Poland, and they got in. And as they're driving out, the bus driver said it was crazy. There were rockets shooting back and forth in front of them. As, you know, like on one side of the road are the Ukrainians, on the other side of the road are the Russians, and they're firing mortars at each other across the road. They had mortars blowing up 100 feet from them while they're driving. It's, you know, it's a day's drive through that to get to the border. And then they get to the border, and then they open up the door to freedom, and there's Forbes, you know, doing a song and dance with a cup of tea. One of them connected with me, uh, an older woman. Uh, the older folks were the tough ones. Uh, young people kind of, I don't know, they, they were just, you know, they had so much going on. They're, you know, trying to get the kids and diapers and wet wipes. And it's just, you know, they, they're trying to deal with, with the actual what's going on. Whereas mm -hmm. the older people, I think, had, a, uh, had kind of a philosophical, you know, they'd seen the, the last time this happened. They see this time. They understand what's going on. They've got to whatever. They understand who I am. They saw the Canadian flag on my head. This one woman connected with me, and she wouldn't let me go. Uh, it was a very long connection. And finally, she released me, and she immediately collapsed, and I was just shaken. Uh, I looked over to the to the, 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 the fellow next to me, and he, he, he looked like he was having a seizure. I grabbed him. I got him out of there. Uh, went to the smoking section, even though I quit smoking. Uh, started again there, and uh, we we tried to calm each other down before we go back. So it, it was it was so weird because we didn't see any violence, but the emotional content was so violent uh, that uh, that it was tough. And it was that over and 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 over, and over again, a thousand times, fifteen hundred times a day. Okay, so in the midst of of this atrocious situation that is is rooted in hate. Um, Let's talk about the love. Let's talk about the good that you saw, because it is it, there are extremes on both ends, right? It, it was it was amazing. People were there from literally every, every country you know I could think of. I, I'd meet somebody and they'd say where they were from, and be like, "Oh wow, that's, you're the first from that country. That's amazing. You know, you're the first person from Chile I've met here." Uh, but everybody was from somewhere different. I mean, there were a lot of Poles. There were a lot of people from, you know, from the town, obviously. But there were people from all over the world. And it was, what was, what was, was really striking was that in the complete lack of organization, I mean, it was complete anarchy, really. I mean, literal structural anarchy. There were no rules. There was no, no governing body. There were maybe maybe 10 cops in this entire train station that's that's entertaining 15,000 you know refugees per day with several hundred uh volunteers and you know seven or eight different organizations all working in the same space there was no military no government presence it was just volunteers who had gotten a plane and arrived there and said what can i do Whew. They had a central office for that, and they'd give you a yellow vest and say, go find something. And they'd take your name down. So they knew kind of, you know, if something happened to you, they knew who to call. But it was, it was anarchy. 
And within that, that anarchy, there was unbelievable organization because everybody was so focused on one thing. Whatever these, these people need, we need to provide. That luggage is too big. Someone's got to carry it. You, carry that. And they got, yeah, on it. You know, they need tea. Who's got tea? They got tea. We need, some of them need coffee. Who's got coffee? They got coffee. It was this amazing effort on the part of hundreds of complete strangers to simply make this moment better for these people. Uh, and it worked at the beginning without a hitch. Uh, and that was extraordinary. There was no politics. There was no, you know, there was no man, woman stuff going on. There was, there was none of the, the burden of our ordinary lives. It was just a very focused effort. And it was, it was, it was beautiful. It was unbelievably beautiful. It was, it was really, really gave me hope, uh, for, for, for what we, we can do. When, when, when we all decide to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was effortless. What to do once you were there was effortless, completely effortless. You just did what was, what, what was really obvious. There was no leadership. It was really kind of, it was really funny. Even within, within individual organizations, like I, you know, I, I, I generally helped at the, uh, the World Central Kitchen. Well, there was sort of somebody who had, you know, had some connection to World Central Kitchen who had set up that particular post. They didn't seem to have any command and control power. They weren't organizing shifts. Even though there were shifts available on the website, it didn't work that way. There were just people that turned up and made it work. And somehow we would notice that stuff was missing and we would accumulate that stuff somehow. My part was uh, I, I, I made sure that they had chocolate. Uh, so we, we just daily went and filled a truck full of chocolate. Somebody else was, was taking care of the sandwiches. There was a, a factory, a food factory in town, and somebody was going back and forth bringing sandwiches. Somebody else was doing soup. There was a firewood guy who turned up once a day with a load of firewood to keep the soup warm. I don't know who was paying for that. I don't know who organized that. It just happened. Um. It was extraordinary to be a part of. It was an ex- it was a it was a very very unique experience. Well, I think a lot of people would say that you did something that was pretty damn cool by going and participating, and you know, especially at a moment when so many of us are just watching, feeling helpless, totally effing helpless, and I I guess the thing I really want to ask you is. What would you say to anyone listening in terms of what they can or should do if they want to help? The first thing I'd say is absolutely no one, no one on this earth is helpless. No one on this earth is, is powerless. My Polish friend at the border was, was very concerned about his family. He was greatly relieved to see that foreigners, myself from Canada, you know, and my my friend from the United States was coming to help. That was meaningful to him. But when we, we, we explained to him how many people were behind us, that we had raised, you know, over 10 grand, we raised about 13 grand in two days with, you know, 50 to $200 donations in two days. Uh, 
that was very meaningful to him. He actually collapsed <laughs> and, and went home the next day. Uh, sick. He, he, he stood at the border for two or three weeks. And when he realized that he was going to be safe, he, he collapsed. We are all very powerful. We, we all have the ability to make a tremendous difference in the world by doing something really quite small. Whether that is, is, is donating a couple hundred bucks or 50 bucks or 10, probably the most meaningful donation to me was a $30 donation from, from a friend in Italy. We all have tremendous power as individuals. And all we have to do is do what we can within all the reasonable limits that modern life puts on us. If you do what you can, you will make a huge difference. The money that you give to charities does reach people who need it. And those people who need it will be really grateful. They will remember those gifts forever. You give a seven-year-old child a teddy bear who's coming out of a war zone, that teddy bear probably costs two bucks. Mm -hmm. But that person will carry with them the fact that a foreigner gave them a teddy bear for the rest of their lives. I remember when I was in Italy uh, befriending older Italians who had been there when the Allies came through, and they would talk about the chocolate bar that someone gave them. You do have the power to make a difference. You might not see it. I think that's a problem with our modern system of charity that we don't see our money go to an individual. I think that's important, both yeah. for the receiver and the giver to have a personal connection. But the idea that you are powerless is just so cynical and false. Forbes, thank you so much for this conversation. It has been like, it's one of those days where I think I get to do this for a living. Like this is my job, really. I, I feel really fortunate and um, I feel a lot of love for what you've done and uh, and hopefully for the ripple effects that this conversation will have. Thank you, Nancy. If uh, we talked a lot about the ripple effects, so that's 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 what, <laughs> that's awesome. That's a great way to end it. Thank you. I love people more than the day before, Nancy. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Canadian Love Map. If you love us, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter. This has been a Podstarter production. production.